Welcome to Bioethics On Air, a program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Alot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Chemical abortion is on the rise. The abortion industry actively promotes this practice, also termed abortion by pill, as a safe alternative to surgical termination. But is it safe? And what is the abortion industry not telling us about it? This is our second Bioethics On Air podcast with the Charlotte Lozier Institute. My guests today are Dr. Tara Sander-Lee, Senior Fellow and Director of Life Science at Charlotte Lozier, and also Tessa Longbonds, a Research Associate at Charlotte Lozier. Tara and Tessa will respond to the often heard claim that chemical abortion is safe and offer evidence that, in fact, it is not. For those who may not be familiar with the Charlotte Lozier Institute, its mission statement maintains, in part, quote, the goal of the Charlotte Lozier Institute is to promote deeper public understanding of the value of human life, motherhood, and fatherhood, and to identify policies and practices that will protect life and serve both women's health and family well-being, unquote. Dr. Tara Sander-Lee and Tessa Longbonds, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Joe. Excited to be here. All right. We're excited to have you as well. So on a a previous podcast that focused on COVID-19 vaccines, that was our episode 71, uh, Dr. David Prentice offered a a really wonderful overview of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. So we don't need to, to go into all of that here, but I'd like to ask you each about your, uh, your work at Charlotte Lozier. So starting with you, Tara, uh, what's your current position? Although I already identified it, but I was wondering if you tell us what your current position is at Charlotte Lozier and what are your responsibilities? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the Senior Fellow and Director of Life Sciences. I've been in that role uh, for a couple of years now. Uh, Prior to that, I was one of the Associate Scholars. Um, And so my, my responsibilities are to use science and statistics to help protect unborn life. And I have many responsibilities. Um, You know, I'm a scientist with academic and clinical medicine experience in pediatric disease with a PhD in biochemistry and then training in cell and molecular biology. So I, I use that training to research ethical advancements in healthcare and identify areas that are unethical. And just to give you, I know um, Dr. Prentice talked about vaccines, so I was involved in that research. But you know, also do research on you know aborted fetal tissue and human embryos in research of medicine, helping people understand the unethical side to that, and then point them into the direction always that there are ethical alternatives. We do not need to exploit unborn life in order to. Um, you know, in order to make scientific advancements. So, but I also then bring, I also help to educate people on the beauty of um, the unborn life and the miracle happening inside. So we're actually getting ready to launch this new website. We've done a lot of research and work to really bring forth one of the, you know, a top science website that's going to explain fetal development from conception all the way to birth. And so those are just some of the things, a snapshot of some of the things that I'm responsible for. Wow. Yeah, you guys are doing a lot of great work. And, and um, as you said, this we're, we're starting a, a series of podcasts with uh, Charlotte Lozier. So I'm, I'm assuming some of the topics that you talked about, we're going to we'll talk about more on podcasts in the future. At least I hope we will. So anyway, uh, Tara, what is a, uh, and this has become a kind of a staple question here on Bioethics on Air. What, is a typ- <laughs> what does a typical day look like for you? 
Well, I'll start off by saying there's a lot of emails, <laughs> a lot of emails. Communication is a big part of, of this job, but those emails are really communicating so that we make sure that we share the information that we have all gathered because we're all, all of us as a team are working together to research these issues. Um, I have experience with scientific writing and publication in medical journals and textbooks. So I continue to write articles after we do the research extensively. We write article, I write articles and publish papers and book chapters that educate about the harms um, you know, abortion and unethical research. And so I do a lot of writing. Um, when needed, I, um, I will prepare testimony for expert taste, state and congressional testimony. Uh, I also am on the phone or on Zoom a lot to provide scientific advice for legislators and policymakers. So my normal day in, includes a lot of reading, writing, researching, presenting, communicating, and emails. That's, that's um, you know, every day looks a little bit different, you know, what the focus is. But at the end of the day, that's, that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Kind of sounds like an ethicist at the NCBC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you're exactly right. You probably are. So Tessa, uh, same questions to you. First off, uh, what is your current position? Although I already identified it in the intro, but what's your current position at Charlotte Lozier and what are your responsibilities? Yes. So I'm a research associate here at CLI. And um, here at CLI, I spend a lot of time looking at state level abortion statistics, trying to see what's going on across the country, focusing a lot on the expansion of chemical abortion, which I know we'll be talking about more today, and just trying to make sure that that information is readily available to people and that uh, they can find it easily so that the public, residents of these states, state legislators, national legislators can easily see what's going on. And then I also assist with some of our ongoing research projects. We have a network of around 70 associate scholars. And so I help some of them with their research and also our vice president of data analytics, exploring the impact of abortion on women and really just making sure that we're doing good science, that we're doing good research and that we're uh, communicating it effectively and making sure that it's informing all of these debates that are happening around the issue. Yeah. So what does a typical day look like for you or, or is, are the things that you mentioned what you do in a typical day? Well, like Tara said, there are a lot of emails, <laughs> but I also spend a lot of time writing and just making sure that our research is ending up where it needs to go. And some of that can be internal, making sure that our government affairs team or our team that's working to help assistance providers for women and families are getting all the facts and research that they need. And then also it's communicating it externally, whether that to be to um, the media or to uh, policymakers or students, and just making sure that the work that we do is actually getting out to its intended audiences. Yeah. So you guys, you guys provide a, a wonderful service. And again, I, I would encourage all of our listeners, if you have not gone to the Charlotte Lozier website or know of the organization, please uh, look them up. Great source of, of, of credible and trustworthy information. So guys, keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. So let's move into our topic for today. So um, Tara, first question to you. Mm -hmm. uh, what is chemical abortion, otherwise known as abortion pills or even mail order abortion? We'll get into that. So what is chemical abortion? What's the process? How does it work? 
So unfortunately, um, it's exactly how it sounds. Um, and a, a chemical abortion or abortion by mail using these pills means that the woman is actually going to receive pills that can be directly mailed to her. And then she can induce an abortion by herself in her own home without formal medical supervision. So she actually takes these pills instead of going into an abortion clinic to have a surgical abortion by a physician, she will actually do the abortion at home by herself as the and basically do the abortion by herself by taking these pills. How, how does it work? So it, it, basically there's two pills. Usually there's two pills. The first pill is taken by the woman is called mifepristone or mifeprex. And this deprives the unborn baby of a critical hormone called progesterone. And progesterone is necessary to sustain the pregnancy. So what happens is when you take this drug that blocks progesterone, it denies the child of nutrients. So the child will die. And then one to two days after taking that first pill, then the second pill called misopristol, misopristol is taken that leads to uterine contractions that, that completes the abortion process and expels the dead baby from the uterus. So those that acknowledge the humanity of the human person from conception know that every time a chemical abortion occurs, just like a surgical abortion, a human life is going to be lost. It's just, it's plain and simple. Yeah. And just to clarify, um, you, you're talking about women uh, access these abortion pills through the mail, and we'll talk about the process a little bit later. But they can also, if correct me if I'm wrong, they can also get them at abortion centers, such as Planned Parenthood and others. Um, yes. They, they do chemical abortion as well, correct? They do. So the, the woman can, um, they, she can stop it. She can you know, communicate with the abortion clinic. She can stop by the clinic. She can pick up the pills, take them home, and then do it that way as well. So there are various ways to get the pills in addition to them just coming to the, her doorstep. Right. All right. So Tara, how does the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, regulate chemical abortion? Well, that's a really important question, especially now. Um, just to kind of back up a little bit and give you a little background information, there's actually two providers of abortion pills who are approved by the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. And that's Danco Laboratories, which is for the name brand drug, Mifeprex, and then GenBioPro for the generic name, Mifepristone. So in order for these certified providers to be, in order for certified providers to be able to provide these abortion pills to women, they have to meet the regulatory requirements set forth by the FDA. And these regulations are part of an approved risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. Um, it's That stands for, so the, the acronym is REMS. REMS. Okay, R-E-M-S. Um, what's important with that is that these REMS regulations are in place when there are serious potential risks when taking serious drugs. And safety protocols need to be in place to prevent harms to these women who take the pills. So the FDA recognized this, um, and that's why they put these REMS in place. And so even if you look on the FDA website, they say that the goal of REMS for the abortion pill is to mitigate the risk of serious complications associated with mifepristone you know, mm -hmm. or chemical abortion. So right. there, are, and there are three things that the goal is. They want to require healthcare providers who prescribe the drug to be certified, you know, in the Mifepristone REMS program. So they have to be certified. Nobody can, you know, you can't just, and you, nobody, you know, anybody can't just give these drugs right. away, right? You can't get them at your primary care provider. 
Yeah, exactly. You need to actually be certified, know you know, so that you understand, so that you know that the person who's giving them to you actually understands the risks, and we'll right. explain those risks to you, right? And we'll be talking about that. But right. um, they also want to make sure that the chemical abortion pill is that the abortion pill is only dispensed in certain healthcare settings, like what we were just talking about. You know, by and under the supervision of that certified prescriber. And then the important goal too is to inform these parents. Sorry, the patients about the risk right. of serious complications associated with it, and it's because it's it's just that you can't just take these pills and not understand a what's happening, but b what could happen as a serious adverse event, and how would you what would you need to do about that? And so that's what's so concerning about this whole area um, of receiving an abortion pill by mail that um, a lot of this communication is is, is going to be lost. So right. Yeah. Can you just tell us what the, what REMS stands for again, just for our listeners? We said it quickly. Yes. I just want to make sure. The- Absolutely. It stands for Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. Okay. So when we're referring to REMS through the rest of the podcast, that's what we're, that's we're, that's what we're speaking of. And you can actually um, go onto the FDA website and, you know, or do a Google search, you know, for FDA drugs that are under REMS and you'll, you'll see if a person or anybody that wants to get more information, they can go right to the FDA website to find information. Yeah. Now, Tara, you mentioned a, a number of safeguards, and I, I'm wondering why did the why were these safeguards put into place by the FDA? Was it simply for informed consent purposes, or were there other reasons why these safeguards are put into place for uh, mifepristone? So they were put in place, yes, to have um, so that make sure that there were is informed consent on the part of the woman that was going to be taking the drug um, so that there also that there were uh, that there were requirements that they knew were going to be met that they knew where there were risks so for example a woman can can only take can a woman can only be prescribed the drug if she was in a, within a certain period of time of pregnancy right so it required um, going actually into the clinic and having an ultrasound to confirm that there was um, a pregnancy and that um, because there are certain contraindications where the woman should not be given these pills. And so by putting those regulations in place, it required not only that she went in, was seen by a physician in person, that um, they con- they confirmed the age of the unborn baby, and then they confirmed that there weren't any other concerns such and we'll talk you know when we talk about this later like ectopic pregnancy right. and then that woman was given the informed consent um she understood what was happening and what could happen so i think that was that was definitely why the fda really rallied around this they understood you know they they saw that there were serious risks to these women and this was not this was not just like taking an over-the-counter pill like Advil or Tylenol, right? right. This was yeah. serious. You were you were killing a human being, <laughs> even yeah. though they might not have recognized that. Right. You know, but, but that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. And in a, in addition to that, you know, because there are already just very normal side effects that happen, lots of bleeding, right? But then on top of that, there were there are serious adverse events that had been reported. They knew it. And they and they that's why they put this in place because they knew that women's women were at risk of being harmed in addition right. to the baby that they were killing. Right. Do you know um, off the top of your head when did the FDA approve 
uh, mifepristone to be used uh, to end pregnancies and, and, and then put these safeguards in place. I, I'm thinking back early 2000s. Am I correct? On that? Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. Tessa might actually know that specific answer to them. Yes, it was, it was 2000. What's 2000? That the okay. FDA approved um, mifepristone, but then they have made a few updates to the REMS between then and now. Right. But, but these safeguards, generally speaking, were, have been in place since the year 2000. So past 21 years, give or take. Right. Like Sessa said, they did loosen. I think in 2016, they actually, um, they did loosen some of the restrictions. Um, but yeah, for the most part, these REMS have been in place for several years. All right. So next question is back to Tara. For how many weeks gestation is chemical abortion indicated or asked maybe a little bit more clearly, how late in her pregnancy can a woman pursue chemical abortion? Yeah, that's another good question because this is a really important aspect of um, the REM. So according to the FDA, chemical abortion is indicated for abortion only if it has been less than 70 days since the first day of her last menstrual period, or in other words, 10 weeks. Um, she's pregnant for 10 weeks gestation. So at that point, I also want to remind people that the, the fetus is the, the, actually the embryo at that point, the human being is developing in the first trimester of pregnancy has a fully beating heart, developing brain, fingers, toes, and a face. <laughs> and so it's, it's just, you know, it's just a, a baby is really a, a very, um, you know, really developing at that stage. But, you know, in addition to that requirement by the FDA, I think it's really important for people to understand that, that the abortion industry is trying to bypass this requirement by using the abortion pills off label and are actually prescribing them now to women past 70 days. And that further increases their chance of adverse events. So the abortion industry actually wants to use these abortion pills. Their goal is to use these pills well into the second trimester. I mean, if we look even at a clinical research trial that is sponsored by Genuity Healthcare Project, which actually receives funding from Planned Parenthood and other organizations that are openly supportive of abortion. They actually have a clinical trial going on right now in Burkina, Burkina Faso and in Africa, in which they are trying to perform chemical abortion between 13 and 22 weeks gestation. And so, and so at, you know, at 22 weeks, we know that babies that have been born extremely premature have survived at that stage. And so it's just, um, it, it's horrible, you know, where they plan and hope to go with this. Right. I find it interesting that they're doing this trial in West Africa um, out of the, uh, you know, out of the eye of the media and others. I, I don't exactly. know if that's planned or not. I, I would assume that it is, but yeah. Yeah, hey, it's horrible. Hi. It's horrible. And I um, looked on, I just looked on the website and they, they say specifically that, you know, you know, they, in order to, you know, people that can enroll to participate in this trial, it's not just women that are adults. They specifically say that children, so, you know, children that are pregnant and they actually specifically say that on their website. I mean, it's horrific. It's horrible. You know, as you were speaking, a, a, a thought came to mind and, and we know that the, the Dobbs case is coming up before the Supreme Court. We're, we're recording this on September 23rd and the Supreme Court just announced a couple of days ago that they're going to hear the Dobbs case on um, December 1st. And I'm, I'm assuming we're going to have more uh, podcasts on that. But I'm, I'm just wondering off the top of your head, Tara, if um, how, if at all, could Dobbs affect chemical abortion? 
So in the Dobbs late abortion case, as you mentioned, um, just for people so they understand that the Supreme Court is going to consider a single question if all pre-viability bans are unconstitutional. So it's also important to know that many states have that have passed or are in the process of passing state limitations on chemical abortion. So certainly the ruling by the Supreme Court could impact whether or not those limitations are challenged. But what I'm really concerned about is how the pro-abortion groups are already publicizing their plans to break the law by illegally distributing chemical abortion pills by mail in the event of a favorable, favorable ruling in Dobbs. So favorable uh, on our side, you mean? What's that? Favorable on, on the side of life, not favorable for favorable the Favorable on the side of life, exactly, yeah. for, for us, yes. Right. So, so then that would even, even in that case, then the efforts by the abortion industry, we know they already want to expand these abortion pills and later in pregnancy, um, I think they would see this as an opportunity to do that and to break the law doing it. I mean, and that just shows that they have no, um, they just completely ignore the science when, when they know that there are risks and harm to women, but now they're ignoring the law. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know, so. yeah. Oy, oy, oy. All right. Let's, uh, let's bring Tessa into the conversation. Um, let's see if we can get some, some facts and figures here. So, so Tessa, what is Charlotte Lozier's and, and really other uh, organizations research as well, but what does Charlotte Lozier's research indicate about the actual number of chemical abortions that are occurring in the U.S. today? How many are happening? That's a really good question. And one thing that we have to keep in mind when we're thinking about how many abortions overall, how many chemical abortions are occurring in the U.S., is that abortion data in the U.S. is pretty piecemeal. It's really up to each state to determine whether they will collect any abortion data at all. And if so, what questions are they going to be asking abortion centers to answer. Um, and states that report, not all of them differentiate between chemical and surgical abortions. Most do, but we really have to go state by state and see what they're reporting um, to get the most current numbers. So in 2019, of the 39 states that have reported abortions so far, that have released their 2019 abortion statistics, 44% of those abortions were chemical. And that's wow. up from 41% wow. in 2018. So That's a lot. That actually surprises me. It that is. That many. It is. And unfortunately, um, they just increased since then. Um, so far, 15 states have released 2020 abortion statistics. And of those states, 56% of the abortions were chemical. So there was quite a jump there between 2019 and 2020. But yeah. that's something that we've been seeing for the past 21 years now since the FDA first approved Mifepristone in 2000. Yeah. Between, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I was wondering if um, that percentage, that jump from, I think you said 44 to 50, 56% from 2019 to 2020, is that COVID related? Very likely. Um, we'll still have to wait and see what other states are showing. Like I said, only 15 have released their reports so far. So the overall picture could change a little bit as more states release reports. But definitely there was that increase there. And I think COVID played a big role um, for many different reasons. Relaxed regulations on chemical abortion and increased demand for abortion overall, sadly, because a lot of people were out of work. A lot of people were scared. And then just a desire from people not to... Um, 
go in for a surgical procedure during the pandemic. So I think there were a lot of different factors in play, but that resulted in that kind of sharp increase last year. So you you mentioned percentages in the U.S. I'm wondering, do you have, is information similar around the world concerning chemical abortion? Yes. So chemical abortion has been increasing around the world, sadly. And like the U.S., not every country does a great job with abortion reporting. So we don't really know exactly what the worldwide figure is. But from other countries, the U.K., for example, they made some changes to their chemical abortion regulations last year as well um, to make it more um, less oversight, easier to get. And now over 80% of all abortions in the UK are chemical. So definitely, definitely a high majority there. And then around the world, we've seen from some of the, some of the large organizations that promote abortion internationally, that chemical abortion is a, is a high priority of, the, of theirs. And that's from groups like Marie Stopes International, MSI, or International Planned Parenthood Federation, have both indicated that chemical abortion is something that they are going to be prioritizing and pushing. And we've seen just numbers go up in their annual reports. So we know that it's something that it's increasing really globally, sadly. Yeah. So Tessa, you kind of answered my next question already, but maybe you could extrapolate a a little bit more on it. But the trends you're seeing in these percentages, obviously, they, they seem, they're trending up. So where are we going with um, chemical abortion in the future? Are we just going to continue seeing these percentages of chemical abortion increase? And, and will someday, I mean, it's, it's the goal of the abortion industry to, to move to solely chemical abortion and not do surgical procedures? Did, any insight on that? Well, I think we will certainly continue to see chemical abortions increase. We have the past couple of years uh, around 12% increase in 2019, and then so far a 26% increase in 2020. Um, And I'm sure that will continue into the future. But as for whether all abortions will eventually be chemical, certainly, as Tara mentioned, they have been uh, pushing the goalposts a little bit and expanding the how far into a pregnancy they are willing to induce a chemical abortion. Um, we've seen recommendations from the National Abortion Federation recommending the use of uh, mifepristone and misoprostol well into the second trimester. So certainly, certainly going to um, continue to be to be used more and more, and really in points in pregnancy that it's just very dangerous, but. I don't think chemical abortion will ever replace surgical abortion entirely because, well, different reasons, but surgical abortion is still by far the most common method later in pregnancy in the U.S. and around the world. But I think certainly we will continue to see this this growth in chemical abortion. Yeah. Hmm. Tessa, I'm wondering about demographic information. So what data do we have about women who choose chemical abortion over surgical abortions? So for example, um, demographic information such as geographic location, is it women in urban areas choose it more than women in rural areas? Does socioeconomic status play into it? Does race, does ethnicity? What, What kind of demographic data do we have? That's a good question. And that's something that we've been looking into here at CLI. 
And it's a little bit difficult to answer because, like I said, it's really up to the states to determine what they're going to collect and report. And not all of them report really useful information, really breaking down the characteristics of women who get chemical versus surgical abortions. But from the states that do, we can see that um, women who choose chemical abortion tend to be white. They tend to be in their 20s. Most women who get abortions are in their 20s, but particularly women who are undergoing chemical abortions don't tend to be the very youngest or the very oldest. Mm -hmm. And really, it's all around the country, urban, rural. Um, Some states have higher percentages of chemical abortions than others, Um, particularly, I think, states that might just have a few abortion centers that are doing chemical abortions only. But really, Really, it's, it's everywhere. And we've seen states like California are putting the abortion pill on all of their public college campuses. Right. And yep. so, of course, students will now be at risk. And so it's really just something that's been increasing all over. Hmm. All right. Tess, I'd like to stay with you and, and change gears slightly uh, and talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. So, Tessa, how has the abortion industry used COVID-19 to expand chemical abortion? Well, as we've seen from the numbers, chemical abortion definitely did expand during the pandemic. And like I mentioned, there were some changes to the regulations. And the abortion industry had been pushing for a while against the REMS, as Tara described, these safety protections for women undergoing chemical abortion. And in particular, they had been pushing against this requirement that mifepristone had to be dispensed in person, that you had to actually go to the clinic and see a doctor to get the pill. And there are a few lawsuits that were ongoing trying to push back on this. And then when the pandemic hit, this really went into overdrive and the abortion industry won a lawsuit blocking this portion of the REMS. And then the FDA decided that they would go ahead and just suspend this in-person requirement for the duration of the pandemic. And so now, as a result of that decision, chemical abortion is available through the mail. And so in states where states that don't have their own state laws regulating its use now have online distributors that are active. That's about half the states that um, the woman would have perhaps a a video call or just over the phone or fill out an online form with her medical information that would then be reviewed by someone on the other side. And then assuming she meets the, uh, the criteria, they would then mail the pills to her, which is, as we can all imagine, has many different risks involved. But that I'm sure contributed to that, that sharp uptick that we saw last year with chemical abortion really just becoming even more widespread than it already was. Yeah. So it's, so the fear of, you know, we don't want women to have to go to a doctor's office because they could contract COVID. So we're going to expand, we're going to expand the, the, uh, the abortion pill, you know, to get it through telemedicine. That's, that's essentially what's happened during COVID. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And we'll talk about, um, telemedicine in a second. I I would like to ask, um, Tara a question though. You know, we're, we're talking about the expansion of chemical abortion, we've, and we've talked about a number of different, um, you know, side effects and adverse effects and everything else that can happen. But what what we haven't talked about is 
what can chemical abortion do to the health of a woman? In addition to the, you know, the, the as you said, the bleeding and, and other um, effects that are directly caused by the pills themselves. But do abortion pills have any impact on women's health, including like, say, the immune system, things like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look just at the immune system itself, we know that by taking the abortion pill, that this will actually decrease a woman's immune system. So it'll be harder for her to fight off an infection. Um, I mean, we know that actually women have died from medical abortion because they succumb to a common soil organism called Clostridium sordelli. <laughs> it's actually like a, a bacteria in the soil that most healthy women with a healthy immune system should be able to fight off and, and not get that uh, serious infection. But we now know that there are various risks, including this serious infection that have resulted in even death um, and have been connected to the abortion pill and have been reported to the FDA. So risks like this uh, really need to be carefully analyzed. And that's why keeping the REMS in place is so important to ensure that women are not harmed through the, the careless distribution of mifepristone so that, you know, it would just be, be horrible. It'd be horrible. We know, we absolutely know of cases um, where this has happened and has actually made the news and, and parents have come forward and explained how their daughters, you know, have taken these pills and then they died as a result. Yeah. So just, just to follow up on that. So these, these effects on the immune system, are these short-term or long-term effects? So like, you know, a woman takes the, mm -hmm. the, the, the abortion pill and obviously her unborn child dies. That's an immediate effect. She right. may have some immediate uh, effects as you know, as you mentioned the bleeding and everything else, mm -hmm. but are, are there long-term effects or is what you're talking about? Are these longer term effects and do these effects last or are they, uh, you know, did, do the effects come about and then and then she would recover from them, if that's the correct um, way of saying it? Yeah. Well, the, the study, you know, regarding the, the bacteria in the soil, that you know, that's definitely an acute issue, um, not being able to fight off. But um, as far as more chronic, long-term, I, I haven't seen any studies. I'd have to look into that research. I, I, there's just, quite honestly, there has been, there's not been a lot of research um, regarding um the long-term impacts of being on mifepristone. And especially if women have repeated uh, pregnancies and repeated abortions after taking these pills. So there's still so much we don't know about um, the harms, especially the long-term harms of taking these pills. And coming from, you know, academic research where I used to be in a lab doing research, you know, you, you often, you know, before any, any, drug goes to the market, there are a lot of safety studies that are done on animals, you know, to make sure yep. what happens. And yep. I've got to be honest, it's just the, it's amazing how this drug has pushed through with so little information, just even in basic animal models about the, the risks and the long-term risks. Um, so it's unfortunate. It's really scary. Yeah. Oof. It gets scarier as this interview goes on. All right, let's uh, let's let's talk about telemedicine, which in a lot of ways appears to be the future of chemical abortion. So, Tara, can you tell or can you speak to why telemedicine is so important to the abortion industry in general, and really to chemical abortion in particular? Well, it's so important to the abortion industry because it continues to feed their narrative to just continue to push abortion to make it easier to make it 
provide easier access to women, especially like in rural areas that might, it might be harder for them to get to a clinic. So that's how they argue that this is so great because now we can reach women that can't come into the clinic or they, um, they have hard time making it into the clinic. So it fits their narrative to make it easier access. And it's so safe, you know, that there shouldn't, you know, that's kind of what they're saying, um, even though we know it's not. And so it really allows for them to, to expand abortion easier and seamlessly, um, right? And it, but then there's also this, what they don't tell you, is that because there's no longer this in-clinic requirement with a doctor, this is going to be cheaper, right? They, they no longer need these brick-and-mortar clinics available. They now can do this all through computers, you know, um, by the phone. You know, there, there's nothing that they need to – they don't – it's just it's going to be much easier for them and it's going to be cheaper for them. So um, that's what's, what's really concerning about this. And – um, you know, with no in-person requirement, women are going to be now given the responsibility of being the abortionist. So it takes, you know, it takes all the responsibility off them and puts that right on the woman. Yeah. Tessa, anything you want to add to this, to this general question about telemedicine and its importance to the abortion industry? Well, I think Tara uh, really gave some good answers as to why they've been emphasizing this and why they've been pushing it. But really, it's just a way to... Um, expand abortion to move it out of, um, I guess, where it's receiving scrutiny and away from medical oversight and just to really be able to um, to push it in places that surgical abortion might not be able to go. Um, we've seen examples of, it's, it's really sad, abortion centers trying to get around state laws by trying to park a mobile van right across the state border so that they can then be dispensing chemical abortion and doing appointments via telemedicine for women who live in the other state. And so really enables them to try to bypass some of these rules and really try to get around some of the the safety standards that are in place. Yeah. Yeah. I know just picking up on something you just said, uh, Tessa, I know uh, Tom Shakley at Americans United for Life, we've had him on our podcast and I've been on his as well too. And he's made the point that uh, abortion providers, one of the reasons why they like chemical abortion is that you know if complications happen with the surgical procedure, that those complications get, um, they get associated with the clinic. Whereas with chemical abortion, you know, complications happen at home and their their hands are essentially clean, so to speak, in terms of having to report those complications. So you don't need to, you know, no need to comment on that, but it's just, um, you know, just another issue why, you know, telemedicine may be, uh, you know, maybe the future of chemical abortion. But but let's move on. So, uh, so Tara, why is prescribing abortion-inducing pills through medicine, uh, through telemedicine, I should say, problematic. We've talked about some of these already, but, but, but give us a give us a rundown. Why is this problematic? Well, it's problematic because as you just said, you know, the abortion is going to be outside of the clinic. It's now going to be in the hands of the woman at home with no medical supervision or counseling. Um and then that and then this woman is going to experience in addition to just performing the abortion itself, then she's going to be experiencing these horrible side effects emotional trauma, and even potentially serious medical complications. So let me just give you, you know, one, 
one example. Well, first, you know, by not having the requirement to come into the clinic and have the ultrasound, there's not even the confirmation that she's pregnant at any stage or age. Um, You know, what stage she's at and what age the baby is. So there's no confirmation of how far along she is in pregnancy and that they're actually staying within that window of 10 weeks. We don't know, you know, is she actually getting the pills for herself or is she getting the pills for her friend? Right. I mean, can, um, how do we know that these are actually she's going to be the one ingesting them if they're, if they're not watching her actually do this? Um, and then I think the really important thing, especially if you're not doing an ultrasound, is that they can't rule out some of those earlier contraindications that I talked about. I mean, they they specifically say that bifepristone, the abortion pill, should not be taken if the woman has an ectopic pregnancy in which the pregnancy happens outside the uterus. So. They don't have, you know, if a woman is doing this at home and she starts bleeding, they tell her that that's just a normal part of the process. She starts experiencing pain. They tell her that's a normal part of the process. She's not going to know if all of a sudden she has an ectopic pregnancy and it's not actually doing what it's supposed to do. And then, you know, it ruptures. She needs emergency care. And if she's at home alone, nobody's, I mean, I mean especially if they're targeting women in rural areas, and we already know that they might be at serious risk of being away from emergency medical care. They're at even greater risk. You know, how are they going to get to the hospital? How are they even going to call if they're you know, in serious life-threatening situation? So it's just they are absolutely, by, by continuing this expansion, they are putting more women at risk of not only serious adverse events, but lethal events that, yeah. that could take their life. Yeah. And in preparing for this, I, I ran across a few um, stories, not too, too many, but a few stories of situations where you had the mother who didn't want to abort the child. You had the father who did want to abort the child. The father got a hold of these pills and, how shall we say, stealthily um, put the pills in food or drink and, and caused abortions to happen. So yep. I mean, mm-hmm. an, another example of, of women being placed at risk, and, and in this case, not even knowing that she's being placed at risk. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Tessa, coming back to you, how are states fighting back on the telemedicine uh, chemical abortion question? Um, What are they doing? Yes. So I think states are recognizing that if the FDA isn't going to defend the REMS and is going to suspend these important elements of the REMS, that it's really up to the states to step in and to implement the regulations, to implement the protections that the FDA doesn't want to. And so recently, we've seen some states passing laws to regulate chemical abortion. And these laws include many different elements, but they really just try to uh, reinforce these protections for women and make sure that these abortions are not happening via telemedicine, that um, it's a doctor who is the one examining the woman and not um, some other maybe slightly less qualified medical professional that uh, that these abortions are being reported to the state so that the state actually knows what's going on and how many are occurring. And like you mentioned, the abortion industry perhaps wanting to um, separate itself from abortion and any complications that may occur. States are making sure that doesn't happen by requiring complication reporting from the doctor who prescribes mifepristone and from any other doctor that might treat a woman who's experiencing a complication. So really just trying to make sure that um, 
that these protections are being put in place at the state level and that states are doing everything they can to step up and just keep track of what's going on, make sure that things aren't happening under the radar, and make sure that complications are being counted because if, uh, if, if no complications are reported, it's easy to think it's safe. But as Tara has said, we know it's not safe. And so states need to make sure that they really know what the true impact is um, through accurate reporting. Do you know um, off the top of your head, I'm just thinking, uh, well, off the top of your head, what states have implemented these laws? I'm just thinking that uh, I know the South Dakota governor just issued an executive order a week or two ago uh, concerning telemedicine. Do you know, just give us um, some states that um, that have changed their laws to help protect women in this sure. area? Yes. So state, state laws kind of run the gamut. Um, depending on which elements of these laws they include. But some of the more recent ones, like you mentioned, we saw the executive order in South Dakota, which was really exciting. And then very recently, some states that have have passed laws, um, Arkansas, Arizona, Indiana, Montana, Oklahoma, and Texas. So those are I guess, the most recent ones that have really strengthened their protections and um, made this a priority due to the, the changes that the FDA made during the pandemic. So hopefully hopefully more will follow their good examples. <laughs> yeah, hopefully more. here. But unfortunately, on the other side, and I, I know I've mentioned this in a previous podcast here in Pennsylvania, um, last year during the, the height of the, well, like, I don't know what the height of the COVID-19 pandemic was, but the, the state legislature passed, state legislature, I should say, passed a, a, a telemedicine expansion bill, but they specifically excluded uh, chemical abortion from it. And Governor Tom Wolf, a Democrat, um, he vetoed it. And apparently he vetoed it in large measure because it didn't, the expansion of telemedicine didn't include uh, access to chemical abortion. So, you know, the states you mentioned, kudos to them, but in, in blue states uh, like, or largely blue states like uh, Pennsylvania, unfortunately, the exact opposite is happening. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a crazy world. All right, next question. Coming back to Tara. We've talked about uh, complications. I'd like to get a little bit more into that. Um, what are, you mentioned some of them already, but what are some of the medical, and in, in medical I'm talking physical complications that arise with chemical abortion, and are these complications similar to or different from those surrounding uh, surgical abortion? Um, yeah, so that's, a, that's another great question. So there are a variety of serious and life-threatening conditions that that actually have been reported to the FDA and withheld from the public knowledge. Uh, various risks include serious infection and even death and have been connected with this abortion pill. Um, we know just according to the FDA that, as I mentioned earlier, you can have a ruptured ectopic pregnancy resulting in death. You can have sepsis that we talked about, including in some cases resulting in death. You can actually have significant blood loss as well, requiring an emergency uh, visit, a a direct visit to the emergency room in order to require a blood transfusion. And so let's get into the nitty gritty. So we know from a peer-reviewed study that was just published this year in 2021 that examined cases of death and severe adverse events after taking abortion pill. And they actually analyzed these complications, which occurred between 2000 and 2019, specifically in the U.S. And what they found that is that more than 20 women died of complications from chemical abortion and more than 500 life-threatening complications were reported 
and nearly 2,000 severe complications were reported. And uh, just to point out that this was, there were, they analyzed over 2,500 cases of adverse events. So the, it, it's just, it's, it's amazing that 2,000 of these were actually severe that were reported. And what they actually found that they estimated that these complications are significantly under, underreported in the U.S., as Tessa has already mentioned, and that with the FDA, this is especially true ever since the FDA relaxed those important requirements um, regarding reporting that now they only have to report death because they re- loosened that in 2016. So now a lot of these more severe adverse events are not being reported the, the, the way that they should. Um, I think it's important that people know that a woman may assume that these taking abortion pill is safer since they are not surgical abortions, but large international studies and meta-analyses have actually documented that the complications by abortion pill are four times more common than surgical abortions during the first trimester. And at least one in 20 women after taking the abortion pill will require actually a surgical abortion afterwards because the abortion pill failed to even work. Right. And or, so, or there's been some retained tissue because, because it, it didn't work properly. And so then they're at risk of an infection and then they're at risk of going in and having more procedures done. So, you know, going back to your question about, you know, are the complications similar to surgical abortion? They are, they, they are, they are more severe. They're more severe. When we start looking and they're more common, when we start looking at surgical abortion, there is going to be a risk, right? Anytime you, you go in and have that horrible procedure done, there's absolutely risk. We know that there is, um, there's a, many long-term risks um, just because of that procedure, even, you know, long-term risk of having a premature baby actually after you've, um, if you go on to have another pregnancy. So there are some similarities in the adverse events between the two, but um, I want to make it really clear that chemical abortion is four times more riskier to the mother, to the, to the woman. And, and it's four times and it's going to be just more dangerous to the woman. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Scary stuff. Yeah. Tessa, I, I realize I, I hijacked this question um, with some comments I made earlier, but um, can you tell us about instances of abortion pills being used in abusive situations? Yes. So uh, like you said earlier, unfortunately, we have seen different instances in which the father of the baby and the mother maybe disagreed about what they wanted to happen. And the man was able to obtain mifepristone uh, through illicit means. A lot of these took place even before the FDA relaxed the in-person requirement and started allowing these drugs to be sent through the mail. So it's probably even more widespread now. But the uh, the boyfriend or the partner was able to get these pills and slip it into um, the woman's food or her her water and um, really just force and coerce these chemical abortions, which is absolutely tragic. And these are only the accounts that we that the woman figured out what had happened and was able to um, go to the police and make sure that charges were filed. So if these are the cases that we know about before 
the FDA started allowing this to happen through the mail. And it, this happened several times. We can only imagine what's going on now that the pills are so much easier to obtain. And even before um, CLI did an analysis of some of these websites that were illegally selling mifepristone to the U.S., even though at the time it was against FDA regulations. And we found that some of these websites were offering bulk discounts on mifepristone and misoprostol. Oh my, which, I'm sorry for laughing, but... Oh, no, yeah, no, like... it's, 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 it's just incredulous. <laughs> That there's no there's no good reason why someone would be buying these drugs in bulk. There wow. is no there's no good reason why an individual would be doing that. And so there's certainly there's certainly this demand from abusers and coercive partners for these drugs. And that's one of the many reasons that we're so concerned about this this lax oversight that. Um, the FDA is allowing and just the, these, the general availability of these drugs now in the U.S. because we know they're falling into the wrong hands. We know that they're going to be used um, against women's will. And it's just really, really concerning that we ultimately don't know which mailbox these pills are ending up in and, and who's going to be taking them. So very yeah. concerning. Yeah. I guess uh, I, I'm just. I guess I'm stuck on the bulk buying. I, I suppose if I was um, trafficking women, you know, sex workers, I guess I would probably want this pill in bulk. I can. I can see maybe that's the, uh, you know, that's the market for purchasing in bulk. But oh my goodness! Yeah, and that is a major oh, yeah. concern. People are very concerned about that. The the predators and and abusers will get access oh, yeah, to these yeah, in yeah, bulk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Yes, and, sell them to the highest bidder. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. No, there's, there's, uh, it's, it's demonic is what it really is when you get down to it. Hey, uh, Tessa, we know that women experience psychological and or spiritual trauma following surgical abortion. What, if anything, I guess, does your, uh, does your research, CLI's research, other people's research indicate about women who experience chemical abortion? Do they still have similar psychological and spiritual trauma? Yeah, so that's something that we wanted to look into because we spend a lot of time talking about the complications of chemical abortion, the physical ramifications. Terrace mentioned that the complication rate is four times that of surgical abortions. And so we know that there are these, these physical risks, but of course, it's not just physical. There are these emotional and mental, spiritual ramifications as well. And so um, one of our associate scholars and I spent some time looking into this, and we actually went through what women themselves were saying online about their experiences. We looked at a website that doesn't take a position on abortion, just allows women to disclose uh, what they've experienced. And we just went through and line by line coded some of these, these blogs. We looked at 98 blogs and just really tried to identify the themes that were emerging what women were, were saying, how they were really wrestling with this. And it was, it's really tragic. Some of the same themes just emerged over and over in these women's stories. And women were saying things that like um, it was their only choice, not that it was something that they wanted to do, but really it was their only choice. They felt like they had no other alternatives. Women were saying that they felt unprepared really for just the amount of pain and bleeding that they went through, but also they felt unprepared for seeing their baby's bodies. Multiple women just said that they didn't know that their baby was going to look like that. They didn't know what to do 
when they had their baby alone, women felt uh, silenced that they really couldn't disclose what they had experienced, that there was no one to talk to about it. Uh, Their family or their partner didn't want to talk about it, or they just felt like it was something that um, the whole experience was just really silencing and uh, stigmatizing and just something that they felt isolated them from everyone else. And then so many women also experienced regret, just this tension between relief that the abortion and the pregnancy was over, but then the regret and if only they could have done something else and not had to go through that experience. So really these heartbreaking, personal, raw accounts of um, just the, the impact that chemical abortion had on them and um, just how how personal it was in their homes, in their bathrooms, um, alone as they were as they were going through this. So definitely, definitely those emotional and spiritual risks with chemical abortion. Yeah, and for all people, or for for our listeners, if if you have experienced abortion, whether surgical abortion, chemical abortion, or know people who have, there, I mean, there are org, uh, organizations, Project Rachel, just being one post-abortive uh, support systems are out there. So please, um, if needed, please, please take, uh, take advantage of those services that are available. So Tara, Tess, I'd like to uh, move towards concluding our podcast on a bit of a more positive note. Um, Tara, what is abortion pill reversal and how does it work? Yes, the this is where there is a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> please, <laughs> please. It's not a train. Okay. Please. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, there is hope. There is serious hope. So some women will decide when they are made aware or um, that there is this option of abortion pill reversal, that they will attempt to reverse the abortion pill process by choosing not to consume the second pill in the regimen, right? So they've taken the first pill. The baby hasn't yet died yet, and they haven't yet taken the second pill. They've changed their mind, and some immediately, you know, some maybe with even in, you know, later that day. And so instead of taking the second pill under medical management, of course, then they they take progest they give them progesterone to reestablish the fetal maternal bond. Okay. So I'm gonna get into a really geeky, just quick science lesson here, okay? Because I can't avoid it. I'm a scientist. What can I say? But I will. Um, I will simplify it. So basically, when you take an abortion pill, that's called an antagonist, right? It's an antagonist. It, it will not allow, and so it actually binds to a re- progesterone receptor and says you cannot function the way that you're supposed to, and it blocks that effect, right? It blocks that nourishment that the baby needs to grow. Well. The agonist, the progesterone, is is there's still, you know, if you're giving progesterone to these women after they've had the abortion pill, the two are going to compete with each other, right? It's kind of like good versus evil. You're going to have the abortion pill, the antagonist competing with the agonist, the progesterone. And basically, if there whoever there's more of, they're going to win. They're going to win and they're going to take over those receptors and then it's going to be functional. So basically, if a physician comes in and they give a large bolus of progesterone, which is used, you know, routinely in, in, in some women's pregnancies to help maintain the pregnancy. But if they give her a bolus of progesterone, that will compete with that abortion pill. And given enough, it'll win out. And we know that about 2,500 women have chosen this option. 
and have proceeded to have healthy babies. And so it is, it's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing option that every woman should be made aware of. Yeah. And the website is it's abortionpillreversal.com. Is that correct? Yes. That, uh, I think yeah. it's abortion pill rescue too. I think um, it's through the Heartbeat International. Heartbeat International. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to put a, a link in the, in the show notes to it. Uh, as well as some of the the uh, documents that we've been talking about um, in this podcast, we'll, we'll, I'll put that uh, I'll put that website up in the notes. Yeah, right there's um, abortionpillreversal.com, and you can they have a hotline you can call, and they will immediately put you in touch with somebody within your local community that can um, that can make sure that you get the help that you need. So, so Tara, the uh, abortion uh, advocates or the abortion industry. Uh, have have pushed back quite strongly on abortion pill reversal, and they 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 decry it as bad medicine and are actively seeking to prevent women from learning about it. Uh, can you speak to the science behind it? You, you mentioned it quickly, but it, it, does the science demonstrate that uh, that this works? Oh yes, absolutely. So one of the champions behind that is Dr. George Delgado, and so he, you know. This, ha- this happened, I think it was back in 2012 when the first patient approached him and she was eight weeks pregnant and she was only 19 years old and she came to him, you know, wanted to, you know, said she had changed and he, he didn't know what to do, you know, so he, he, he kind of went back and researched this quickly and then he, you know, he decided, you know what, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this progesterone and so he actually put her on a daily regimen of progesterone. And then he had a, you know, at 11 weeks and two days, then the progesterone was given twice weekly and then it was stopped. And then she delivered a healthy male at 37 weeks. And so, you know, there are case after case. So he actually, one of the initial reports that he presented are several cases where he actually was able to successfully follow this protocol that he had developed the amount of progesterone to give over how many days and for how long and viable infants were delivered um, at the end. And, and as I mentioned, you know, the science is really clear why it works. You know, I, I'm a biochemist. I'm a trained biochemist. It absolutely makes sense. You know, like I mentioned before, you have this, these antagonists and these agonists, the abortion pill with the progesterone that are competing for binding to this receptor. And it just absolutely makes scientific sense. And it, um, and it's absolutely clear that this is going to, when you give that progesterone, it's going to compete for binding to that progesterone receptor, and that's going to allow for the pregnancy to continue. There are more. Um, there are more. There are studies that are have been done that are confirming this with larger uh, groups of of women, and there's even more that are actually going on right now, you know, because they, they, we, with any scientific study, you want to show that it's, it's effective across all different cohorts, right. Of, of women right. and, yep. and, sure. and increase the numbers. So those studies are being done, but ever since that very initial study was published with some case reports, it absolutely has been proven that it works and it can be successful. Wow. Cool. So scientifically speaking, we can say that good triumphs over evil. <laughs> even in the realm of science, good. Trend, yes, that's exactly right. 
<laughs> Tessa, how are uh, how are some states seeking to make knowledge of abortion pill reversal part of the informed consent process for chemical abortion? Yes. So since so many women have been choosing abortion pill reversal, and there's really just been this trend of women taking mifepristone and then having this immediate regret and wanting to reverse it, um, women searching online trying to figure out what their options are and uh, and what they can do. Some states have decided to try to give women that information up front when the woman is going in for her chemical abortion, uh, making sure that she is given information on the abortion pill reversal process. And so she knows that it's something that she can pursue. Um, the, the faster women start this, the better the faster they get in touch with a medical professional who can help them and get them, them on that extra progesterone, the better. And so states have really just been trying to make sure that women know about it and that uh, they know where to go for help. Um, I've heard from, uh, from people who have worked on the abortion pill reversal hotline, the abortion pill rescue hotline, that they've spoken with women who have been in the parking lot of the abortion center, having just taken mifepristone and already regretting it and already wanting to make a different choice. So um, if the faster that women can get the information that they need on what their options are, the better. Yeah, because it, it, scientifically, you the faster you get that progesterone, the better chance that baby has of surviving. So time is absolutely critical. So abortionpillreversal.com, great resource to uh, to start that reversal process. As we conclude, starting with uh, Tara, what final words of wisdom do you have for our listeners today? Um, my final words are just that people that people understand that abortion pills are really dangerous, that they have significantly higher complications than surgical abortion, and that women's safety is truly at risk. So I encourage people that are listening to this to um, listen to it again if it didn't make sense. I know we threw <laughs> a lot of information at you. <laughs> listen to it twice because that, that increases our numbers. Yeah. So that, that would actually be yeah. good. Go ahead. Everybody listen to it twice. Listen to it twice. Make it, make it three times and, th and then send it to all your friends and tell them to listen to it twice. That's right. Exactly. Because um, I just think, you know, there is so much information here, but it's really important that we take the time to educate ourselves our friends and our families uh, to share these facts, to share the science, share the facts about how the abortion pill works and the serious dangers that exist if women take these pills, um, share the incredible information that Testa has provided to you. And that's on our website, uh, you know, about, you know, you what is your website? Your oh, lozierinstitute.org. So it's L-O-Z-I-E-R and then institute.org. And you can get all the information about, you know, state reporting. Go to your state. Find out what's happening in your state. Find out if um, if somebody has, if, if legislators are looking into this. Talk to your legislators. I, I think we just need to, and, and I, I think, and also at the federal level, really pay attention to what's going on. I mean, one thing that I didn't mention yet that I, that there's a Congressman Maloney, at the federal level and her colleagues are actually trying to remove these important FDA safeguards for abortion pills. And this is a blatant move to not follow the science. I mean, they keep saying that they want to follow the science, follow the science. Well, they want to remove these safeguards and put this in the hands of every woman. And this is an absolute dangerous drug to do that. So those are just some of my final words, but I'm sure Tessa has some other amazing ideas. 
Tessa, your final words of wisdom for our listeners. Well, I really just have to echo what Tara said. Um, just making sure that we know what's going on is so important that we're really drilling down into the science, into um, the research and making sure that we have an accurate understanding because there are lots of press releases and there are lots of tweets about how abor- the abortion pill is safe and that it's easy and that it's this um, the new frontier for women, but really it isn't. It's dangerous. It puts women at risk. It's not safe. It's not good science. It's not good medicine. And so we just need to know what's going on. Um, Like Tara said, we should know what our state laws are. We need to keep an eye on what's happening nationally. The FDA is revisiting the REMS, reviewing them right now, and they are uh, due to release their decision by November 1st. And so there could be a major shift in the regulations that are in place at the federal level. So really just making sure that we know what's happening and that we're telling other people what's happening, that we're making sure that the first time that young women hear about what chemical abortion is and how it works isn't when they're trying to Google how to get an abortion. We need to make sure that people are aware that this is risky, that it's dangerous, and that it's not a safe choice for them. And uh, make sure that we know about abortion pill reversal, too. There's the website, abortionpillreversal.com, and there's also a hotline. That's 877-558-0333. And just make sure that people know about this life-saving option because it can save lives. It saved over 2,500 babies and counting. So definitely something that can have a true impact for life. And I'm just going to add one more quick thing. I know it's really hard to stay on top of the news. I mean, the news is overwhelming sometimes, right? Just how fast things are going these days. So um, we have good news for you. The Lozer Institute has actually, we have now a newsletter to kind of keep you so you you have the most current information in addition to like some of the press releases we put out. But so you can sign up for it. Go go to lozerinstitute.org and sign up to receive a newsletter. So you'll kind of, we can help you stay informed. And I also am going to put a plug for the new website that I talked about at the very beginning. It's called The Voyage of Life that's going to be launching very soon. So keep your eyes peeled. Um, This is going to just be one of its kind resource to really understand how the baby um, is a human being and to help you even explain that to people, you know, explain the science to them that this baby is a human being from day one of conception until the, the last day um, that they're revealed to the world and you will be equipped with all the science you need to explain the beauty of life. Yeah, yeah excellent. Uh, just to to echo what Tara said, the Charlotte Lozier Institute is has really become the NCBC's go-to um, source for scientific knowledge, for you know truthful, trustworthy um, scientific knowledge, because we know we don't get a whole heck of a lot of that in our world today. So thank you, Tara. Thank you, Tessa. Thank you for joining me on Bioethics On Air. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Joe. It's really been really been a great experience talking to you. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our newsletter or our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot. Archived editions of our podcast are available on our website, 
please hover on the blogs and podcasts button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, please go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.